with that being said, again, we are in Romans chapter 8, verse 26 through 27. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square. Um, and in order to fully understand our verses today, we got to keep in mind, as usual, the wider context of the chapter. And in the past couple uh, of weeks, we've considered how in our suffering, in our struggles, we really are longing for something. We are longing for God's glory to be revealed. And we were promised that, that our present suffering is not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. We are waiting for the consummation of all things, the fulfillment of all things that we, we hear whispers of in this age, but in the age to come, we will see a new heavens and new earth, a day when all shall be well. And we long for that. We look forward to that. And through, through this teaching in this chapter, Paul has remained tethered to the Spirit of God. In fact, I think we might be able to, de de to develop a pretty robust and cogent uh, pneumatology or study or theology of the Holy Spirit just by reading Romans chapter 8. If you think about it, and if you look back through the totality of this chapter, the Spirit of God is mentioned by Paul 14 times in chapter 8. Now, keep in mind the previous seven chapters, he's mentioned the Spirit four times, and in the next uh, eight chapters, he's going to mention him seven times. So that means within Romans chapter 8, Paul mentions the Holy Spirit more times than the rest of the letter combined. And among other things, and in chapter 8, we've learned a lot about the Holy Spirit, but in particular, we've, we've read and learned that the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead now dwells within the lives of believers. And his indwelling Spirit, God's indwelling Spirit, in our hearts is what makes us children of God. His presence in our hearts assures us, it assures you, it assures me, that we are sons and daughters of the Heavenly Father. And within that, then, the Holy Spirit produces the fruit, or rather the fruits of hope and endurance in the middle of this light and momentary affliction, this, this present age, if you will. And so with this in mind, Paul now writes, within that context, Paul writes Romans chapter 8, verse 26 and 27. Look at it with me as we read it. Paul says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Likewise, I think, first word there in these sets of verses, at least in the English Standard Version, which I'm reading, uh, best connects with that previous verse about hope. So as hope helps us endure, Paul says the Spirit helps us endure. In fact, in the immediate context, Paul gives us three foundational truths that anchor us in this age as we strive to endure until the return of Christ and the coming glory. First, as we looked at last Sunday, the hope of the coming glory, which calls and empowers us to endure, is one of our anchors. And so we are a people who have hope. But the second thing is that the Spirit of God himself, which we'll look at today, namely his intercessory prayers or groanings on our behalf, anchor us in this age. And then thirdly, God's work in everything to bring about our good, 
which we'll look at next Sunday, also anchors us. So these three anchors we find ourselves in. We looked at hope. Today we'll look at God's spirit. And next week we will look at the fact that everything that God does and in everything, God is bringing about the good. So, so in summary, here's good news for us today. In our suffering, God helps us. In our suffering, God helps us. Perhaps a simplistic truth, but that's what makes it so beautiful. That in our suffering, you are not forgotten. In our suffering, you are not left to fend for yourself. In our suffering, God helps us. God helps us by giving us hope. God helps us by praying for us through his spirit. And God helps us by working all things for us, for our good. And it's that second portion of help. That helping through prayer that I'd like to talk about today. That God helps us by praying for us. As Paul puts it, the Spirit intercedes for the saints. Admittedly, that's a bit of an odd concept, I think, for us to think about, that God prays for us. Perhaps we are familiar with the idea that that we are to pray to God, and that's challenging enough to conceive of. So to think about God praying for us may be even more confusing. So in order to help us understand the nature and power of God's prayers for us, I'd like to talk about three ideas today. The occasion of God's prayers for us, the content of God's prayers for us, and the purpose of God's prayers for us. So the occasion, or when does God pray for us, and the content, what does he pray for us, and the purpose, why does he pray? So the occasion, the content, and the purpose. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, We're coming to your word, and it's the same, but we feel very different a lot of the times. Depending on what our week's been like, or or even what we are anticipating the rest of this day, or tomorrow, or in the forthcoming weeks. So settle our souls. Settle my soul, Father. So many things that cause us anxiety. So many ideas of earthly wisdom that distract us, that that grip our attention, that we build our lives around, even now. And so help us, Father. What we need is to hear from you. What we need is the God of the universe to see through the dark recesses of our hearts and minds and souls, the one who knit us together in our mother's womb to knit back the places where we need healing, to comfort the places where we are weary, and afflicted, to speak truth to the places where we are confused and lack wisdom. And so I thank you so much, God, that we don't have to go searching for all of the little sages and gurus that hit us in all those different points. We go to the God who knows all, who can do all, who sees all, and who loves us by his grace. And so, Father, would you know us today? Would you love us today? And would we trust you in the middle of this and respond with joy and obedience, I pray in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Look again at verse 26. and Let's consider just the first portion of what Paul is saying here. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Our first movement, if you will, is what's the occasion of God's prayers for us? When does he pray? Notice, it's when we are weak. It's in our weakness. Remember, this passage bears the weight, if you will, of suffering and waiting with patience. However, I don't think what Paul has in mind when he talks about weakness is about sin or the implications of the fallen world. 
I think he's talking about our design. Our, our sin and the fall of all of creation certainly complicate our weakness, but we were made with certain limitations and vulnerabilities. Have you noticed this? Our knowledge is limited. Our emotional bandwidth is limited, perhaps now more than ever. Our bodies are limited. The word Paul chooses for weakness as, is anesthete. It means, or anesthetai, which means impotence or lack of strength, even sickness. So what Paul is getting at underneath this word is that we are needy and dependent creatures. Therefore, in life and particularly in suffering, our weakness is exposed. Our limitations are exposed. I don't know about you. I mean, I know about some of you. I don't know about all of you. But I feel like I've never had to admit my weakness more than through this season. And in my pride, I don't know that I've fought against my weakness more than through this season. It's hard to admit how dependent I am. This has been really a demanding season as, as, a, as a husband and as a father. I'm constantly concerned about my wife and my kids, and, and I'm limited in my ways that I can care for and protect and provide for them. And as one of your elders, as a pastor, I'm, I'm limited in my understanding and ability and love. I, I have had to wrestle with our elders and deacons ideas that I never thought I would have to wrestle with as I never thought I'd have to read articles from the CDC as a pastor and act like I know what they're talking about, right? So in many ways, I'm constantly coming up against the limits in this season about what it means to be an under-shepherd, one of those who shepherd this flock that 1 Peter 5 says is that is among me. And I'm not always willing in the middle of that to rest or ask for help or to share the ways that I need care. It seems, well... <laughs> It seems weak to ask for such things. Have you ever felt that? That even though you would never act like you don't have weaknesses, like if somebody asks you a straight-up question, it's really hard to just ask for help and say, I need a break. I need someone to step in and help me here, or here's where I'm weak. Suffice to say, I just want to confess to you all, I'm really awkward, if not ashamed, of the fact that I have so many weaknesses, and that more than I have weaknesses, that I am weak. So much so that I even often reframe my unhealthy habits to try to, to veil my weaknesses. I reframe those things as virtues. And talk about, at least in my own subconscious, how hard of a worker I am and how much I love people and how really dedicated I am to my church and family when really I lack boundaries and, and lacked a willingness to say that I need help. And so I don't rest and I don't admit my weakness in actuality, what I think that the Lord has been teaching me is that I lack trust in others and I lack trust in Him, the Lord. See, when we are unwilling to admit our weakness and our need for help, that's really what we are demonstrating. In actuality, I am scared to rest because I think everyone and everything is dependent upon me not stopping. In other words, I've taken the words of the New Testament that says that Jesus holds all things together by the word of his power, I believe that Jason holds his world, world together by the word of his own power and the strength of his own might. This is not just a bad habit. It's deeply sinful, and I need to repent of it. How about you? What's your relationship? What's your relationship like with your weaknesses and your limitations? 
What if we learned to see our weaknesses, not as shameful shortcomings to cover up with pride and unhealthy habits that we reframe, reframe as virtues, but as an invitation to trust, to enjoy intimacy and dependency with our Heavenly Father? Can you even imagine what that would be like? That's what I'm learning, that weakness is the invitation to dependency. Weakness is the invitation to dependency. It's not a term of condemnation. Paul started this chapter by saying there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so when he introduces this word weakness, we should not think it is a term of condemnation. Are you with me? Our weakness is an invitation to depend upon the Lord, to enjoy intimacy with Him, and to trust Him. Have you ever noticed how Jesus even exhibited this and demonstrated a life of weakness, that He was weak and dependent? The writer of Hebrews explains that Jesus is a particular type of high priest or mediator for us in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 14 and 15. He said, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. In other words, church, my sister, my brother, hear this. Jesus experienced limitations of the flesh. He was in one place at one time. Imagine, you know how frustrating it is sometimes for us to feel like we're in one place at one time? Jesus bore that limitation. Jesus experienced even the limits of knowledge. Certain things, he said, were left only to his heavenly Father. Jesus experienced the limits of wakefulness. He got tired and he slept. And he slept even. What's really interesting, places like Mark 4, he slept when a lot of people wished that he would stay awake and keep doing work, right? Maybe I'm speaking to some of your souls. You're not sleeping very much right now because you keep working, believing that if you stop working, things are going to fall apart. Jesus slept when a lot of other people had tasks for him to complete. See, in all of this, Jesus doesn't diminish or dismiss his weakness. He allowed his weakness to lead him to his heavenly Father. Jesus was always cultivating intimacy and trusting the Father. In particular, Jesus prayed when his weakness was exposed. We see this in places like Luke chapter 22. Luke records that Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The cup was a way that Jesus spoke about the wrath of God or his impending death. And so in, in that moment, as Jesus is praying, he's grappling with the weight of the cross. He's facing his weakness. And so he allowed his weakness to lead him to his Father. See, prayer is one of the clearest ways that we cultivate trust and intimacy and dependency with the Heavenly Father. But isn't it true, often in our weakness, prayer is really hard. It's really hard to pray in those times, isn't it? And so the comfort that we find in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, is that in our weakness, we are instructed to remember that God prays for us. Jesus sympathizes with us in our weakness, and the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Did you see that? Look again at verse 26. The Spirit helps us. The Spirit helps you, sister. The Spirit helps you, my brother. He helps you. He helps me. 
The word help is actually this really rare compound word that combines three separate Greek words. Paul uses a mashup, if you will, of three different words, one that means together, another that is over against, and the other is to take. So he takes together, over against, and to take, and he mashes them together into a single word. 20th century Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones, who actually preached this text, verses 26 and 27, three weeks in a row in London and Westminster. And of this word, Lloyd-Jones said, of the word help, he says it means that one person gives a helping hand to another by taking hold over and against that person of the load that he is carrying. So let's not miss this. Paul is saying that in our weakness, there is someone. In our weakness, there is someone to help us. In our weakness, there is an advocate. In our weakness, the Spirit takes over. The occasion for God's prayers for us is a common one. It's our weakness. In our weakness, that's when he prays for us. The Spirit of God is with us to help us. He takes over to pray for us in our weakness. But what does he pray? Let's think about the content of God's prayers for us. Look again, Romans chapter 8, verse 26 on through verse 27. He says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. See, prayer is always hard. To conceive of the right words to speak to the God of the universe about, about our lives, is a really daunting task. If you really think about it, I'm going to talk to the God of the universe with words that I know and sentences that I can construct and understanding that I have, and, and we just talk like he's in the room with us? It's a brilliantly challenging everyday practice of the follower of Jesus. So it's really comforting to know that the disciples were kind of lost too. And so Jesus taught them to pray. Right in the middle of one of the greatest sermons that Jesus ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, he taught them to pray. Praying is hard. But in our weakness, prayer is even more challenging, isn't it? Perhaps it's not challenging in terms of a discipline. In other words, we haven't forgotten how to pray, the mechanics of it all, but we are befuddled about what to pray. Have you ever been so sad that you weren't sure what to say to God? Have you ever been so angry that you weren't sure what to ask him for? Have you ever been so hurt, so confused, so frustrated, and in so much pain that you lacked any understanding which way was up and down, let alone what to say to, the God, to God? See, I think that we are particularly challenged about what to pray when we face a discerning moment of whether or not to ask God to remove an obstacle or to give us strength to endure it. We're not sure if that obstacle, that challenge, that moment or person that's causing suffering in our lives, that God has sent them to instruct and encourage us, or we should just pray them out of our lives or pray it out of... We are often lost about what to pray. It's hard. Have you ever experienced this? See, in our weakness, we're not sure what's best. In our limitations, we're not sure what's right or what's wise. And in our own humanity, we're not always sure what God desires for us. That's what Paul is saying. No, notice he says, for we do not know what 
to pray for as we ought. But like being weak, it's not sinful to be unsure of what to pray. We're merely facing our humanity. We should be very careful. I think shame is right around the corner when we are speechless in the middle of our prayer life, believing that we should know what to say. In fact, Lloyd-Jones goes on to encourage his congregation, and now I trust that by God's Spirit to encourage us that when we are speechless before God in the face of suffering sometimes, the evil one tries to convince us that therefore we must not be sons and daughters of the Heavenly Father. We think, if I were really a good daughter, if I were really a good son, I would know what to ask. I would know what I ought to pray. But that's not true. Children are not more like children the less they need help and the less that they need their parents. Rather, their standing as children is directly predicated upon their trust, intimacy, and dependency upon their parents, in particular when they feel their weakness. See, what makes us children is not that we know what to ask, but that we know who to ask. Am I preaching to you yet? It's not that I have all of the information and I'm ready to show God, my Heavenly Father, all that I have together. It's simply like, Lord, I got nothing. Can I come to you again? I get to come to you in sorrow and sadness and suffering, no matter what I'm feeling and thinking. I don't know what to say, but I know who to talk to. Are you with me? See, to be sure, through the years, dependency changes in human families about what appropriate and healthy relationships look like. But in God's family, increasing maturity is always correlated with increasing dependency. The more dependent upon the Heavenly Father we are, the more mature we become as the sons and daughters of our Father. You see, in our impotence and ignorance, we should not lose heart. Instead, we ought to allow our weakness and uncertainty to lead us to the Heavenly Father just like Jesus. See, because it's in precisely in those moments, precisely in those moments that we don't know what to pray, that the Scriptures are telling us today that God prays for us. Now, before we go any further, I'd like to address the theological elephant in the room, if you will. Perhaps you've been thinking this whole time, does God really pray to himself? What are we talking about here? Well, I think the short answer is yes and no, right? Which is always really, really helpful. Our understanding of what the Bible teaches about the nature of God is that he is one yet three, which helps us understand the answer to the question is, does God pray to himself? He is one God, yet he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And while we may be comfortable with Jesus, the incarnate Son, praying to the Heavenly Father while he is walking on earth, the idea that the Holy Spirit prays to the Father may be new to us. But that indeed is what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 8, verse 26 through 27. So what's this look like? Scholar Michael Reeves uh, summarizes the Trinity's relationship with a believer a while a believer is in prayer this way, that the Spirit supports the Son brings us, and the Father hears us with joy. So in prayer, the Spirit supports us in prayer, the Son brings us to the Father in prayer, and the Father hears us with joy in prayer. It might be also helpful to think about this spatially, that, that the Father is in heaven, and the Son is at his right hand, and the Holy Spirit is in our hearts. And so, as Marvadon explains, what a relief that is. When we cannot pray, the scriptures assure us 
not only that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us, but also Jesus lives eternally at the Father's right hand to make intercession for us. In other words, our well-being, please hear this, church, our well-being in the middle of weakness and ignorance is not dependent upon your prayer life. Your well-being, your care, your protection, your security is not bound up on how good your prayers are, but rather it is bound upon, it is centered upon, it is predicated and dependent upon the eternal union of the Trinity. Think about that. It's beautiful. There is one in heaven who speaks to the Father on your behalf. And there is one in your hearts who speaks to the Father through the Son on your behalf. God prays for us. So what's God pray for? Look at verse 26. We're told that the the Spirit of God prays to the Father with groanings too deep for words. Because of this eternal union and the power of affection, joy and intimacy and dependency in which the Trinity exists, there is a way of communicating, which Paul says is beyond words that happens within the Godhead. Certainly beyond human language, but more to the point, Paul is speaking about prayer and communication, which is unspoken. Think about this. In our most intimate human relationships, we have likely fostered a kind of communicating that goes without saying a word, that takes place simply by looking at each other, Something just by, sometimes just by feeling the energy of that person in the room. You know what they're thinking. You know what they're about to say before they even say anything. And the longer you are in those relationships, the longer you are in one of those kind of intimate relationships that can communicate without words, the richer that unspoken form of communicating becomes. How much more able then is the Spirit of God able to communicate to the Heavenly Father without speaking a word? If you and I, in our finite relationships and in our broken relationships, are able to telepathically understand one another, how much more the Spirit of God know the heart and mind of the Father and the Father to know the heart and mind of the Spirit? They've been united forever. That's what Paul explains, reading further in verse 27, and he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit. Did you, did you hear that? He knows the mind of the Spirit. So when we are at a loss for words, when we might fear that God will disown us or that all manner of evil may befall us because we don't know what to pray for. And if we don't know what to pray for, then bad things may happen to us or good things will not come our way. But in actuality, In our weakness, God is the one who searches the heart. This is what's meant to captivate our imagination in the middle of our sorrow and suffering. It's the picture of someone who is diligently searching the dark recesses of a cave. And he is the one who knows the contents of your heart. And when he searches your heart, what does he find? Or rather, who does he find? His own spirit whose mind he perfectly knows. The Father who knows our hearts searches our hearts and he finds his very own spirit whose mind he perfectly understands and and understands without speaking a word. This is such a grace that when we are weak, the spirit carries our burdens. He takes over. 
When we are speechless, the the Spirit speaks for us with love beyond words. We, We are not left to our own abilities and efforts and words and understanding. Our weakness is not used against us. There is no condemnation. Our weakness, rather, is an invitation to intimacy. You are so dearly loved. You are so eternally cared for. You are so faithfully protected and secure. You are so perfectly helped, church, because God prays for you. The occasion of God's prayers is our weakness. The content of his prayers for us is an unspoken affection. Now, what's the meaning of all of this? What's the outcome or purpose of God's prayers for us. I think the latter portion of verse 27 answers this. Romans 8, 27 says, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, God is a God who intercedes for us. The idea is woven throughout this lesson today, but it should be noted that this is a part of God's quality, a part of His nature. God is a God who intercedes for us. He is a God who steps in for our good. After all, isn't the gospel the story of a God who did not stay far off waiting for humanity to reach him through good and righteous living? The good news, the gospel, is that God interceded on our behalf through his Son by the power of the Spirit. And so Paul tells us in Romans 5 verse 8, it was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. In our weakness, God does not stay far off waiting for us to find the right words that tickle his ear, that get his attention, that manipulate him to action. We do not coerce God. We do not make him feel sorry for us so that he does something for us. We don't impress him with our powerful prayers. This is what Jesus was correcting. Rather, in our weakness, the Spirit helps us and intercedes for us. See, in in the overarching theme of the gospel, we do not know what to pray. And in the middle of that, God steps in for our good. See, the way that Paul is talking about prayer is really a summary of the gospel. That when we were weak, God speaks on our behalf. When we were weak, Christ died in our place and for our sins. When we don't know what in the world to say, the Holy Spirit speaks to the Father with groanings too deep for words. Our God is a God who intercedes. Why is this so vital? Why must we recognize that God is indeed a God who intercedes, especially when it comes to our prayer life? Because, and remember how much I love you, because I think we often view prayer as the way in which we intercede on our behalf to God. See, when and where we advocate for ourselves to God. We think that prayer is when and where, in other words, we help ourselves by praying to God about our lives and friends and ailments. We can tend to be tempted to believe that we are moving the hand of God to bend to our will and for our good. In other words, in our prayer life, we, we can contradict the gospel. Believing that because we've got the right words, we put God on the hook. Because we are speaking at just the right time and in just the right way and in just the right cadence, right? That somehow it will manipulate God to action on our behalf. However, 
Even though the Bible is clear that prayer plays a special role in bringing about the will of God, it nevertheless is about bringing about the will of God. See, prayer, let me put it to us this way. Prayer is not the way that we rewrite history. Prayer is the way that we usher in history as God deems fit. As Dr. Tim Keller writes in his book on prayer, to pray is to accept that we are and always will be wholly dependent on God for everything. See, prayer is not about getting God to line up with us, but rather prayer's God's way of aligning our hearts with His. That's the purpose of prayer. That's the purpose of God's prayers then for us. The Holy Spirit prays for us, the saints, according to the will of God. The purpose of God's prayers for us is His will. This should inform our prayers even when we do have the right words. Have you ever noticed how often we ask for people to pray for something to happen without even considering whether or not this might even be God's will? Pray I get that job. Pray I get that house. Pray I get that spouse. Pray I go to that school. Pray that my parents see things my way. These are prayers prayed in fear and not faith. And humility. James addresses this in James chapter 4 when he says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If the Lord wills. This is the kind of language that aligns our hearts to the God of the universe, no matter what we ask or desire. We admit that we don't know what's best. We don't see everything. We are utterly dependent. Now think about that. Think about that as a framework for prayer. When God prays for us, he never has to add the caveat, if the Lord wills. Why? because he perfectly knows his will. He never asks for anything that isn't his will. He never speaks anything that isn't his will. In fact, by simply speaking, God reveals his will. Everything he says and does is his will. So church, when he intercedes for you and he intercedes for me, his intercession is perfectly, completely, and totally his will. And his groanings are in accordance with his will. His unspoken communion for your sake brings about what Paul will call in Romans chapter 12, the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What we need in our weakness, what is always most helpful for us when we face limitations, is not our will. Rather, it's the will of God. Corrie ten Boom was instrumental in the Dutch resistance, and in fact, she and many others saved many different lives of allied troops, including my grandfather. She helped countless Jewish people in particular flee from occupied Holland, and she was also imprisoned in a concentration camp, and so you can imagine someone like Corrie ten Boom, there were many days when she didn't know what to pray. And so daily and moment by moment, she had to choose to follow her weakness, to trust and intimacy and dependency upon her Heavenly Father. And one night after a really close call that almost took her life, 
And really, she was only saved because of some what apparent looked like an apparent happenstance moment. She and her sister were talking about it, whose name is Betsy. She learned from her sister Betsy, there are no ifs in God's world. And so no place and no places that are safer than any other places. The center of his will is our only safety. Oh, Corey, Betsy says, let us pray that we may always know it. Church, there is no place safer than the center of God's will. So in your imagination, be comforted by the reality in your heart, in your understanding, in your mind. Be comforted by this brilliant truth that there is one in your heart and there is one in heaven who daily are groaning on your behalf in weakness, perfectly in line with the will of God. How comforting to know that in our weakness, everything that the Spirit prays to the Father is in accordance with the will of God. The occasion for God's prayers for us is our weakness. The content of God's prayers for us is an unspoken affection. The purpose of God's prayers for us is always His will. We are weak, and God prays for us. May this brilliant grace cause you to follow your weakness every day, to trust, to intimacy, and to dependency upon a heavenly Father who loves you and who is praying for you. Heavenly Father, what a truth this is. What a beauty, what a grace. Help us to be a people more and more who see reality as it is. Would you continually tune our collective imagination as your people to be rightly equipped by your word, to know that in our weakness, we find strength because you are a God who intercedes for us. Yes, through your Son, you interceded on the cross. And now by your Spirit daily, you intercede through his groanings and prayers for us. Would this great truth remind us that we are daughters, that we are sons, deeply and dearly and perfectly loved by you, our Heavenly Father. Oh, what a God we serve. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.